Welcome back for our 18th shir. Chai. Wow, look at that. Time flies. Our learning is dedicated to Lilo Nishmas with Kabat Yaakov Alevi, Lucy Mayan, Rina D, a Rufushleim of Pratila Batya, but Chayatova, Brachavikail, but Rachel Gita, Yudidi Chaim ben Aviva, Rivka Chaya, Moshe Limelech Alevi ben Basha, Shalom and Chayasar, Shimon ben Elka, Yusom Moshe Chaim ben Chanamalka, Shaduchim for all those in need. We find ourselves at the beginning of Parak Yod Chet. We're, we're probably not going to do the whole perek today, but I'd like to take a look at two basic questions. The Jewish people are going to transition. Until now, their home base has been in Gilgal, and as such, because their home base is in Gilgal, that is also where the Mishkan is. So Korban Pesach, done in Gilgal. Any korbano that one might have done during the 14 years of conquest and division of the land all is going to be done in Gilgal. And yet, we find ourselves in Perak Yud Chet, Pasuk Aleph, with a transition. If the entire Sefer is, in a certain sense, a transition of the Jewish people moving from the nomadic existence of living in the desert to a people that are tied to a land it's going to be the same thing for the house of God. The house of God that has traveled through the desert for close to 40 years and then has been 14 years in Gilgal as a transitional place, it too is about to make a move. It too is about to make a transition. And it is going to transition into a place of semi-permanence. Pasuk Aleph starts off, I kalukul Yisrael Shiloh. The entire Jewish people, they come to Shiloh, and they settle, they dwell, so to speak, or they make dwell the Oel Moed, and the land is conquered before them. The, the Malbim deals with the fact that there's a lot going on in this puzzle. Vaikalu, okay, so they all go to Shiloh, they settle the Ohel there. And then it tells us that the Aretz was Nechbesha. Says the Malbim, Until now, in Gilgal, and previously in the desert, it was in an Ohel. And now they made it to Mishkan. It's called the Mishkan of the desert also, but really at the end of the day, it's really the Ohel Moed. It's a tent. Points out the, the Malbim. This is a transition, not only in terms of location, but in terms of construction. Until now, the Mishkan has been in Ohel. It's got portable walls. You want to take it apart? No problem. You want to put it back together? That's great. It shouldn't take that long. You 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 put together the, the walls, you throw on the topping, and you're finished. They're now going to a place where the walls will be stone, but the roof will be in Ohel. It is a moment of movement, it's a moment of change. So two questions, why is Shiloh chosen and why now? So if you look at the map to the left, it's a map that we've spent a lot of time looking at the last two weeks. Take a look at the map. Shiloh is to the left of that big blue arrow, right around there. It is just about in the center of Ephraim, and uh, it's really, if you think about it, it's actually the center of Israel, both north-south, east-west. If you were to choose a place that's central to everyone, 
Shiloh is it. In fact, Yerushalayim finds itself to be less of a central point than Shiloh. Next time when we learn, we're going to discuss Binyamin's place and why Binyamin is the host of um, of the Beis Hamikdash in Yerushalayim. There is an opinion that tries to explain that Shiloh is also kind of tied to Ephraim and Binyamin. It's more of a border town. I, I could not make uh, that work at all with any of the maps or any any other sources we have, but it's an interesting thought nonetheless. Why Shiloh? I think it seems to be that it's a central place. Now, other than that, if you drive on the 60 and you go visit Shiloh, and it is really, to me, one of the most special places to visit. If you go visit Shiloh, one of the things that you'll notice is, other than the fact that it was chosen, it's just another stop along the windy road of Derech Ha'avot. If they had chosen, a, or if God had chosen a different Mountain, a different hilltop, a different mountaintop, it could have worked just as well. So there is the question as to why Shiloh. And I don't really have a very good answer other than the fact that it does find itself pretty center to everything. And then the question, though, is why now? Why didn't we move a year or two ago? Or why not wait a little longer? And that, I think, is the question that we'll have a better chance answering. Now, if you take a look at the picture on the right, that is actually one of the most magnificent shuls I've ever visited. Um, it is the shul called Mishkan Shiloh in Shiloh. If you if you go visit the old Tel Shiloh, that is the old city of Shiloh, it's about a five-minute drive into the new town of Shiloh, which is a beautiful community that's built right next to Shiloh. They built their shul, but they built their shul. It's ironic because I actually daven in a shul also called Mishkan Shiloh, which is a beautiful shul, but looks nothing like this at all. What they wanted to do when they built this shul, brilliantly done, they wanted it to mirror the Mishkan itself. And so, supposedly, dimensions are actually the same as the Mishkan itself. But if you take a look over here, this is the ramp and the stairs into the women's section. That looks like the ramp to the Mizbeach, and that is built like the Mizbeach. Now, that piece is a little bit extra because you do have to get into the building. But those are what that is what it looked like the the walls and the stones around the Mishkan and that over there of course it's not made of material but it's made of I guess some stone and paint and whatever that actually is supposed to look like the curtains the the uh, carpeting not the carpeting the um, the drape that was over the Mishkan itself and in in when you go inside the shul itself the the shulchan. That they that they daven in that they lay off looks like the shulchan the amud looks like the mizbeach hazahav and the aron looks like the aron hakodesh with the poles and everything. It is a magnificent place. It's a beautiful place to visit. You, if you looked at this this Google image quickly, you could actually believe that perhaps it is really a rebuilding of the Mishkan from its time. The cars in the parking lot kind of throw you for a loop. But again, the Mishkan gets a home. Why? Why is it in Shiloh and why now? Interesting take by the Chomat Anach. He says, Everybody came, even the non-soldiers. The Chomat Anach answers the question that should be bothering us. Who cares? Why do we need to know Because he says that's the impetus for moving. 
Not only were the Jews moving back and forth to Gilgal, but the Aron itself was moving back and forth to Gilgal. It accompanied them out to war. That's an interesting point that the Chomat Anach brings up. It's not something I think that we've mentioned at all. But if, in fact, the Chomat Anach is correct, and the Aron does move back and forth to war, I think that that really does... um, shed light on a story that we're going to see much later, much, much, much later, when we get to the story of the Aron being taken from Shiloh to go out to war in the days of Eli. It doesn't, it no longer doesn't make sense. It actually is congruent with what you would expect based on their experience in the past. Granted, it is many hundreds of years later, but they probably had this story of, oh, remember when our great-great-great-grandfathers went out to war, they took the Aron with them, we're going to war against the them. we really need the help, let's bring the Aron with us. But says the Chomatanach, now that war is over, and that they are establishing themselves, they have a home for themselves, the Aron no longer needs to leave, and it needs a more permanent home. And therefore, what would be the most logical permanent home for them to be in? in a Mishkan, in a home with walls and, and, and some sort of permanence to it. And where is it? They choose Shiloh. Now, I'd like to share with you a, a diagram that I created that I think does a really good job of teaching the four key Mishnayo in Zvachim, Zvachim Parakid because I think that with an understanding of these, uh, this, these Mishnayo, we can really understand a lot of what's going on in the times, in the four to 500 years between the Jews leaving Egypt and the arrival um, of the Beis HaMiklash in the days of Shlomo. So this is what the Mishnah says. Until there was a Mishkan, the first one, the one in the desert, you Bamo were Mutarot. If you want to bring a carbon, you could. To bring your own korban. And the avodah was done by the firstborns. Mishu kama mishkan. When the mishkan was built, post chayta egel, nesu abamot, bamot, private altars were forbidden, vavodah koanim, And the, the service in the base HaMiklash moved over to the koanim, not the firstborn. And the, the more severe, the more holy korbanot were eaten within the confines of the mishkan, and those that were not were eaten in the entire camp of the Jewish people. This over here in the top left corner is a beautiful picture of the Mishkan in the desert. This is what it looked like. You had these walls that were held up with um, with tent pegs. And that was the, the outside courtyard. That is the Mishkan itself. That's a close-up of the Mishkan where you can see the multi-layers of um, drapes that were on top of it. They gave it um, different colors, different feels, different different. Um, different looks. What happens before that existed? If a person wanted to bring a carbon, either in the desert or perhaps even in Egypt, your firstborn son in a private altar was able to bring it. Along came the Mishkan, and the Mishkan said, no, you can no longer private altars. Was it such a hassle? Not really, because how far were you away from the Mishkan? It was really a stone's throw away. So you were able to walk very, very easily to it. Okay, that's Mishnah Dalit. Baula Gilgal, the Abamo, they arrived at Gilgal. And remember, during the 14 years, some of the people were beginning to settle. So as you were settling, you were home. The Mishkan no longer had a home to live in. So 
Bamot private altars were once again permissible. And the heavier, the more severe, the more important sacrifices you have to come bring to, in Gilgal, but smaller ones that were not of as great significance, I could bring in my backyard on a bama. If you take a look at the bottom left corner, that is actually a bama that was dug up archaeologically. They found this, they found this. And well, what was uh what, what made them feel strongly that it identifies as a Jewish altar is there's no image imagery on the Mizbeach itself. But we move to Mishnavah. And in Mishnavav, we're told, What happens when they came to Shiloh? They're in Shiloh for, I believe, 369 years. It's a long time. The, the, the Bamot were once again forbidden. Right? X no longer led to. We said this very quickly, and you could have missed it in the Malbim, but the Malbim points out real walls. But look at the top. The top looks very similar to the Mishkan. Tent pegged into the side. It stays over. There's no real roof. Um, We're going to get to that in just a little bit. But again, at this point in time, it sort of goes back to the times of the Mishkan in the, in the, uh, in the Midbar. No Bamot. Kachekalashim have to be eaten within the walls and Kachim Kalim Master Shani Bukhala Roe. It has to be eaten within um, vision of the Mishkan. Okay, so that gives you a little bit more, a little bit more room because the Mishkan was built in Shiloh on a mountain, not the tallest mountain, which we'll discuss at some point in the future. But nonetheless, it's built on a mountain. Because it's built on a mountain, you have, you can see it from a distance. In fact, we we have proof of that from the psukim itself because they they see this runner coming towards the uh, toward from the distance. So he probably could have seen the mishkan. Also, he could have eaten his master sheni as soon as he sees it. Mishnah Zayin. But what happens when when Shiloh was destroyed? Mishnah Zayin. When they moved back to when they moved out and the new mishkan was Nov and then eventually Givon, Bamot were permissible. And once again, I could eat the lesser korbanot anywhere in Israel by the cities. Mishnechet, bol Yerushalayim. The Beis Hamikdash is built in Yerushalayim. Nesua b'amot v'lo yelohem het od heter v'yaita nachala. There was never going to be a opportunity to do b'amot again. So the Beis Hamikdash is destroyed. It doesn't make a difference. You cannot, you cannot build a bama in your backyard just because you think it looks nice, and because you say there's no basic English, I can't bring one anyway. That's how it goes. So what exactly is going on here? To understand that, we have to take a look at a Pasuk in Devarim. It says, You can't just do whatever you want. What does that mean? You can't bring sacrifices wherever you want, do whatever you want. That's a phrase that we're actually going to have a bit. And people did whatever was good in their eyes. That's not a good thing. So I was saying, that's not what we want. Because you haven't come yet to the menucha and the nachla that God has given you. What does that mean? You haven't come yet to the menucha and the nachla. Now, if you, if you looked at, if you heard the Mishnah carefully, I did them very carefully, uh, quickly, and I purposely didn't put them up on the screen because I felt that that would be a little bit of a distraction and the, the words were not as powerful as the image. But we had that the Mishkan was a menucha 
And what? The base of English was a Nachla. Rashi points that out from the Gemara. He says, What is the difference between a Menucha and a Nachla? So the best way to, to explain it would be the idea of a person who's going on a trip. Let's just say that I find myself, I'm moving. I'm moving from one area to another. And I'm going to drive from point A to point B. But let's say it's a distance of a day, more than a day's worth of driving. A person is relocating from New York to Florida. Okay, so you load up your house, you put it on the truck, and what happens? You send it on. Now, what happens if there's like a, a gap of a couple of weeks before your stuff arrives in Florida, before your house is ready in Florida? What happens? You have a menucha. What happens? You rent a home for two, three weeks. That's a menucha. And then, or, or maybe you're doing construction down in Florida, you're going to be living in a house in Florida for a year or two or whatever until you get to your final resting place. That's your menucha. What is the nachla? The nachla is when I have my, my home and that's where I'm going to live in. I feel uncomfortable with the New York to Florida uh, example. But let's say a person is making aliyah, they're moving from uh, New York, again, they're moving from Florida to Israel, but they come to Israel and they know that they're building in a community that's not built yet, but it'll be in there in two years. So they rent the house for two years. Menucha, the nachla is when you have that home. It's your home forever, God willing. It's almost like an ancestral land. That's pshat in, in the base of English. The base of English is a nachla, it's a permanent home. Shiloh a menucha. It's a, a rest, a long rest. 369 years is not nothing. It's just a rest. Now, it says in Pasuk Yud that you're going to cross over the Jordan. Check, we did that. You're going to live, settle in the land that God gave you. We did that. And you're going to conquer the, the enemies around you and you're going to sit there safely. Isn't Pasuk Yud what we've, what we've done the last 17 prakim. But there's one piece that's missing. Until now, I, a member of certain tribes, I have a home, I have a land. This is going to be my plot of land. It's going to be passed down. Midor Lador. What about God? God doesn't have a place. God's house is still living in a temporal place in Gilgal. And you're going to be able to bring all of your korban out there, everything that you need, everything that you want, you're going to do there. Isn't that amazing? The psukim are a unwrapping of everything we've done until now. God's house needs to be chosen. God chooses the place. Why Shiloh? I don't know. But Shiloh is chosen as the place because God needs a place that his house could be. And then you're going to go there. Now, what's the purpose of going there? United. That's right. United, sponsoring the Mishkan. No, God forbid. The purpose of the Mishkan is united. It's unity. It's that where, if wherever I'm going, I'm going up north. You're going down south. He's going east. She's going west. We all have our places that we're going. But you have this place that you're united. You come to visit the, 
the Mishkan, you all come together. It brings everybody in and can has them with the same sense of purpose. And you'll be content. There'll be a certain sense of happiness. Something really special is going to happen. Why? Because you're there. And because you have this home. Now, let's try to understand the Mishnah in Zvachim a little bit better. I normally don't go backwards. So let's see if this works. When the Jews were in the Mishkan, in the desert, and they had the Mishkan, is there any more perfect reflection of the Jewish people's state at the time than a Mishkan? They don't have any permanence. They're moving. They need something that's portable. Alas, they come to Israel, and they no longer need something portable. So they settle roots. But not really, because for the first 14 years, what are they doing? They're conquering. Conquering is there is no sense of permanence. So they don't even have the temporary status of the Mishkan. Bring, bring your bummo to whatever you want. But the Jewish people then, for 369 years, they have the Mishkan and Shiloh. The Mishkan and Shiloh is reflective of the fact that the Jews are settling. And they are given the goal by God to settle the land and create a united 12 tribes. Each tribe in their own land, but they are united under the flag of the Mishkan, the house of God. That's where they're all going to be. As the Jews are transitioning into a more permanent place, doesn't it make sense that their home should also be, or the home of God should be something more permanent? But is it fully there? The answer is no, because the Jewish people don't have full control of the land. The Jewish people are not fully there yet. And so the roof of the Mishkan reflects the fact that they're there, but not there. They're close but not perfect. When the Mishkan and Shiloh is destroyed in the days of Shaul, we find ourselves in a time where the Jews are in a tumultuous position. Things are not looking good. Things are not going well. It is at that moment that Bamo become back in fashion and the Mishkan becomes much like Gilgal, more temporary. Now you have to fast forward and think what happens in the days of David Amelech. David seizes power, creates a much more unified Jewish people. It takes a lot of effort. He does not have the peace, both internally and externally, that his son Shlomo will have. But he's setting the stage for the ultimate, and that is the Beis HaMikdash. When the Beit HaMikdash is built, the final resting place for God on earth, at that point in time, there is complete unity amongst the Jewish people. And the Jews have complete control over their enemies. And at that point in time, they build a house with a real roof. That's really a permanent structure. It takes quite an effort to destroy it. And that perhaps is really how the story and the history of the Jewish people and God's house mirror their very own existence. And when the Jew- what happens when the Jewish people are no longer able to be unified, they can't get along well? This time God destroys the Beit HaMikdash. He says to the Jewish people, just like my house is destroyed, and, and it, I don't have a home, 
you no longer have a home, and the Jewish people are sent into exile. That's Rabbi Hatton's understanding of how the Perek transitions and how the Jewish people transition. But we still find ourselves with a question. Why build now? Um, and why break camp now? And for that, I'd like to share with you nine more psukim. There were seven tribes that did not do their part. They had not conquered their lands. Rashi does us a favor and he says, what do you mean? Reuven got and half tribes had already gotten their land. They had already given out the Nachla to those two and a half tribes. Yehuda, Ephraim, and Chatzisheva Menashe. That's five tribes. But the other seven had been what? They'd been lax. They'd been lazy. When are you, until when are you going to be lazy? Mitrapim, Rashi says Mitrashlin. Um, if you um, if you take a look at Parshat Shmot, when Paro describes the Jewish people, when Moshe says they're working too hard, give them a break, three days off, he says, Nirpim, Atem, Nirpim. Same word. Mitrapim. Until when are you going to be lazy? God gave you this land. When are you going to be late? Until when are you going to be lazy? So, so the people don't know what to do. They're really in a state of tumult. You want us to conquer it, but we haven't done it. And 14 years have, la- have, have lagged on and they still haven't done it. So why break and build the Mishka now? But Alex Israel suggests something beautiful. He says, you ever take a group of kids somewhere? It's a camping trip. It's the next morning and you want to leave. But nobody wants to get up because they're just tired. I went to sleep late. I didn't sleep too well. So what do you want to do? You want to, you need to get the kids out. So what do you do? Best way, take the tent apart. I might be sleeping in this really comfortable sleeping bag with a roof over my head. But if I take the roof off, really, I'm in a sleeping bag and exposed. People move along a lot quicker that way. Right, same thing. We're trying to get our family going and it's not working. What happens? I'm in the car. Cars going. Anybody that's not in the car in five minutes, see you later. That's why they built now. They're, Yoshua is telling them, we're not in Gilgal anymore. The Mishkan has moved on and you have to move on as well. The people find it very hard. So Pazak Dalit, what does what Yoshua say? Take three people from each Shevet. And, I'll, and I will send them, and they will go through the land. And what will they do? They will write down um, and explain what, what it is that they want. What, what, what plots work for them? What does the land look like? The Kihilat Yitzchak explains that the reason why they send three people out is they need a bait in. This is a monetary evaluation of the land, and therefore you need a bait in of three. Okay. And you're going to divide the seven pieces of, of, of land. You have to the south, we know that's where Yehuda is, and to the north, not the extreme north, but to the north of Yehuda, we have Beit Yosef, Menashe, and Ephraim. And you'll 
write the land into seven pieces. And then we'll do the we'll do the um the goral to decide who goes where. And uh, we're we're gonna do it. I guess it's seven, not eight. You're not you don't have to worry about Levi. Why? Because Levi has their own nachala. And that's God. And the other people already have their own land. Okay. And the people go up and they do it. And he commands the people that are going to write down what they want, to describe what the land looks like. And then we'll do the Goral in Shiloh. And they then come back to Shiloh and tell him what they saw. And they then divide it up. Again, that is a fascinating question. What does mean? Is it based on Yahushua's uh, division of the land? Or is it based on God's division of the land? Or... We discussed in the past, or maybe it's based on the Goralot that we had really kind of hinted at already in Sefer Duration, the Brachot of Yaakov Avinu, and then again with some of them in Moshe Rabbeinu when he gives the Brachot at the end. What does Yeshua do to help? When someone is stuck, sometimes they need someone to move them along. We we desperately want in our our children, our students, people that we work with, we want them to have a sense of independence. It's true. Those are the skills we want to give people. Yet sometimes a person is stuck. And when they're stuck, we have two choices. We could try to push them to make a decision. But sometimes we just have to say to them, I'm going to make the decision for you. Yoshua finds that these seven shvatim are stuck. They can't do it. They're not go-getters, self-starters like Yehuda, Ephraim and Menashe, Reuven and God. They're just waiting. And they've waited. So what Yoshua does is, he does two things. He moves the Mishkan to say, game over, the camp has moved. That's one. But he also says to them, I'm not going to just leave you. I'm going to give you a playbook to be successful. I can't go conquer it. Let, let's send a, a tribunal from your shevet out to look at the land and decide what makes sense. Where should we go next? Yeshua gives them the skills. By giving him those skills, what he's saying to them is, I got your back. I'm holding your hand. You're not alone. Whatever you want to use as your metaphor, that's what it is. That's what he says to them. You're not alone. We're going to do this. But you got to get moving. And so that's actually exactly what happens. The Jewish people move on. And we're going to pick up next time, God willing, with who picks first. I want to leave you with a question. If you had to guess who would pick first, who would it be? There are many tribes remaining. Of the seven tribes, which one would you assume is going to come next? That's the question I leave you with. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful week. Keep walking in the ways of the prophets and we'll see you next time.